0: in wilmington north carolina this is coastline i'm rachel lewis Hilburn. the wilmington 10 nine men one woman wrongly accused and convicted of arson and conspiracy each of the 10 serving substantial prison time for crimes they did not commit. The nine men were African-American, the woman was white. The violence that erupted in Wilmington 50 years ago in early February 1971 was fomented by racial tension, desegregation, active white supremacist groups facing off against black activists who were demanding equal rights and equal educational opportunities. After four days of clashes in the port city, two people were dead, six were injured, and more than half a million dollars in damage was done. Mike's Grocery, a white-owned store in a black neighborhood, had been firebombed. It took the National Guard to put an end to the conflict. The people held responsible for the violence became known as the Wilmington 10, gaining international attention as they fought for their freedom after enduring a judicial process driven by prosecutorial misconduct. Their convictions were overturned after nearly a decade in 1980, but actual pardons didn't come until 2012, more than three decades later, courtesy of then North Carolina Governor Bev Perdue. By then, two of the 10 had died. Our discussion today is more than a revisitation of the events in Wilmington 50 years ago, although there is merit in that alone. Today, we will also explore how these 10 wrongful convictions in the fight for equal rights led to a new Black political landscape. Joining me now is Kenneth Jenkin, professor of African-American and Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is also a member of the university's commission on history, race, and a way forward. He is the author of the Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice, and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s. Professor Jenkin, welcome to Coastline.
1: Good afternoon, thank you for having me.
0: People may not have heard about the Wilmington 10. Help us understand what really led to to the four days of violence in the Port City. Before the violence started, what were black students demanding?
1: The uh, event started uh, really in January of 1971. When uh, a when students went out and protested for uh, for a relevant black studies program, they protested against uh, racist uh, school administrators and teachers, they were discriminated against on the athletic fields. Uh, And uh, I suppose most crucially, they were the victims of uh, police who came onto campus uh, to break up fights uh, and uh, arrested or harassed only the black students and let the white students go. And there was also uh, a series of adult, uh, white white adult thugs who came onto campus to harass the students. All of this uh, led to a, uh, uh, the, uh, a group of students at uh, the two high schools, Hoggard and New Hanover, uh, to uh, issue a set of demands and threaten to boycott if the school board didn't meet them. And the school board didn't meet them and they began a boycott.
0: What actually led to the violence?
1: What led to the violence? Well, The students uh, began their boycott in uh, the first week of February. Uh, There was uh, news that was disseminated around uh, the city, mainly through the papers, and the Rights of White People Organization, which was a a paramilitary group, largely composed of uh, 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 ex-Marines based in Brunswick County, uh, heard about it and uh, began to drive uh, drive by the boycott headquarters, which was Gregory Congregational Church. Uh, And uh, they harassed students, they uh, shot up the church, they shot at students. And in response uh, to this, the students uh, established a a perimeter around the church, which was uh, armed, uh, and so they fought back. Uh, there was also um, uh, uh, stores that were burned uh, in the neighborhood and uh, elsewhere, and uh, then uh, on the overnight hours of uh, February sixth and seventh, those those hours, uh, the grocery store nearby the uh, nearby the Gregory Congregational Church, Mike's Grocery, uh, uh, was uh, was firebombed. And uh, as a one of the student leaders uh, went to check on it, the police found him, saw him and uh, shot him. He was uh, unarmed by most accounts. And then the next day, uh, uh, a a, a member of the rights of white people, uh, uh, Harvey Cumber, drove up through uh, police lines and got out of his truck and prepared to shoot at the church. Uh, and then he was shot by somebody, uh, uh, we don't know who, somebody uh, who uh, from n- in the church or near the church uh, shot him. And uh, the violence ended uh, shortly after that when uh, uh, when uh, the mayor uh, declared a curfew and uh, uh, the governor called him a national guard.
0: And just to be clear, you're saying that it was the white vigilantes that actually launched the first round of violence and the black student activists and those who were their allies were defending themselves. Yes, that's great. You write about you write about a billboard in North Carolina when you're kind of explaining the atmosphere of the times that proudly declared, welcome to Smithfield, this is Klan country, join and support the United Clans of America, help fight communism and integration. So there are going to be some listeners who just find it hard to believe that in the 1970s, there would still be that kind of open white supremacy. And you just talked about a group that was called the rights of white people. Yes. How, after the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s, could that kind of blatant, vocal um, and visual white supremacy still exist?
1: Well, that's a good question. And uh, my answer is that uh, it never went away. It was uh, it was defeated um, through legislation in, in some ways so uh, Jim Crow segregation uh, was uh, abolished in uh, in the 1960s um, there was uh, uh, but but those people didn't go away those people didn't go away and you um, uh, that's the best answer I can I can give you. You know they were, I think, at different points in time they were supported. Uh, they, in some ways, the rights of white people at times seemed to be an auxiliary of uh, the police, and uh, was uh, was an organization that uh, I wouldn't say did the police and dirty work, but there was a they, they were imbricated the police and the sheriffs and. Uh, Uh, the rights of white people, and their aim was to control uh, was to control um, a a black freedom movement, which was on the rise.
0: You you write in the in your book that you've decided to leave the individual stories of each of the 10 to them to tell if they see fit to share. How, How many at this point have publicly shared their stories that you're aware of?
1: well it, there has been there has been one uh, memoir uh wayne moore who wrote uh triumphant warriors which was his uh which was his memoir uh ben chavis has uh spoken about his um uh his experiences both as a member of the wilmington 10 and as a lifelong uh person in the struggle uh he speaks about that uh frequently and has written about it um there have been other stories uh, in the local paper in Wilmington at different points in time. Uh, and that's, you know, that is about it right now is that I'm aware of.
0: Yeah. And there, there's one other, the Wilmington 10 Willie, written by Willie Earl Vereen, Wilmington mm-hmm. 10 Willie, guilt by association. But it's, it, this is an important point that you make in your book about how you can't capture the profundity and suffering of of each individual. And you you even say in the book that the moniker the Wilmington 10 is synthetic. What do you mean by that?
1: I mean, that the term the Wilmington 10 uh, came after the fact, if you will, and it covers a whole range of activities. Uh, You know, it it, it taught the Wilmington 10, it can mean the 10 individuals, it could mean this movement it could mean a a time period this kind of a feeling and what the wilmington Ten does is it allows us to investigate the movement and the struggles but it also covers up the fact that these were 10 individuals whose lives were ruined or interrupted and who um uh, who had different experiences in life, and had they each had their own aims and, and hopes and aspirations, and these were uh, were interrupted. And I want people to I want people to be recon- to be cognizant of that, and uh, and appreciate these sacrifices that these ten individuals uh, uh, made for the cause
0: you're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of the events leading to the convictions of the Wilmington 10 50 years ago and the resulting rise of new black politics with UNC professor Kenneth Jenkin. We'll be back from this short break in 90 seconds. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The Wilmington 10 wrongfully convicted of arson and conspiracy in 1972 grew into an international representation of the crimes of white supremacy and led to a new black political landscape. Kenneth Jenkin is a professor of African-American and Diaspora Studies at UNC Chapel Hill, and he's the author of the book, The Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice, and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s. Professor Jenkin, one of the points that you make in the book is that there is a link between the coup d'etat of 1898 and the Wilmington 10 in 1971. Now, we've talked at length on this program about the 1898 coup in which whites illegally took Black-owned property. They killed an unknown number of citizens. They forced Black elected officials out of office. They sent an unknown number of Black residents into exile. What is the link between those events that are so many years apart?
1: Well, I think uh, they bookend a, uh, a uh, uh, an important time in uh, U.S. history and in African American history. The, the The Wilmington Race Riot or Wilmington Massacre of 1898, uh, as you said, it uh, it began the process or it accelerated the process of uh, eliminating African Americans from public life. Uh, a disfranchisement came shortly after that, uh, the dispossession of uh, property, as you mentioned. It also um, uh, initiated a decades-long period of uh, political and ideological subordination of African Americans. People who lived through it, were who lived through 1898, were reluctant to talk about it they uh, kept to themselves if they were uh, part of the uh, black Wilmington middle class they uh, they adopted uh, a politics of uh, respectability they tried to keep out of trouble and they attached themselves to one or another uh, faction of the white uh, ruling elite and this had a depressing you know it depressed uh, uh, it, it depressed any civil rights activity through the 1930s, 40s, uh, 50s, and uh, 60s. Um, and it meant for the for the students boycotting that they had few allies among the adults, uh, that the, their parents and grandparents um, had either a, a direct or maybe one generation uh, removed from 1898. They had that memory. And the the black political leadership in Wilmington was not willing to extend a hand uh, to the students. There was an exception, but but that was really uh, the rule. Uh,
0: yeah, the, can you sort of describe what what you call that that 1898 mentality? You said that that people were depressed by that, and it it, it squashed uh, really black fiery. Um, more forceful Black political demands. But can you talk about how the older Black generation in Wilmington sort of found their way, and what that looked like for them and how they behaved and how different that was from from the Black student activists?
1: Well, the uh, the leadership, the, the, that generation of leadership, uh, Edward Curtin, uh Hubert Eaton. Um they uh promoted uh uh self-help, if you will. They uh they talked about uh the inability of uh working class African Americans to get ahead as being uh something that was uh something that was they were at fault for as opposed to lack of jobs, uh, lack of the, you know, blocked advancement, things like that. They, uh, as I said, they, they had fairly good relationships with, uh, uh, with the power structure and I, I would say comfortable relationships, uh, the, uh, uh the, uh, editor of the, uh, black newspaper in Wilmington called Curtin, uh, the, uh, fair-haired boy of the rich, uh. And they got along, generally speaking, by cutting themselves off uh, from the majority, from you know, from the from from the black workers and uh, black domestic servants and you know, longshoremen, things like that. And that's how they got along. Uh, and uh, they cautioned moderation politically, but also they cautioned you know, keep your nose clean, if you will, uh, pull your pants up. Uh, and as if that was the way, uh, to get ahead, uh, Dolores Moore, the mother of Wayne Moore, one of the Wilmington 10, uh, spoke with derision about Hubert Eaton and said he was just out for himself. Um, uh, Bertha Todd, uh, a fixture in, uh, in uh, the Wilmington public schools and an important figure in, uh, in the struggle over the Wilmington 10, uh, talk about the 1898 mentality. That, uh, that people, that black people were just not willing to, uh, were, or were not, I wouldn't say willing, were not able to, that generation was not able to, uh, to rise up. That they had been so, the, the effects of 1898, that massacre, the, the property theft, um, uh, uh was, w- was so great that it was hard for them to rise up. And that really wasn't shattered until the Wilmington Kent, until the school boycott um, uh, and the demands put forward for for full equality and equal and dignified treatment. That's what smashed that 1898 mentality.
0: Do you think that the, the existence of the Williston School before desegregation had something to do with that, with the older generations? assertion that they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps i mean there was a whole there there were astonishing you know given the limitations on black citizens in the port city uh, there were just astonishing accomplishments that that people from that generation and you're talking about when bertha todd was librarian at the williston school and she has described and so have some of the graduates of of that school how even though it was segregated they felt loved they felt like they had a quality education Mm -hmm. and and you know fast forward to 1971 you've got black students who not only don't have an equal education with whites but they're harassed on campus by white vigilantes and white supremacists who have no business on campus Supported by the administration,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so, so is, I, yeah, yeah. Go on. yeah. Well, that just so that that was I I think one of the fundamental differences right between generations, like mm-hmm. these black students were asking for what possibly their parents and grandparents had oh. enjoyed.
1: Y- yes, I, I I think so. Uh, in, in, in many ways that. You know, it, it, in recapping uh, the events of the Wilmington Ten, I I didn't go back far enough in the last uh, segment, and and the the back the full backstory was that uh, in 1968 the New Hanover County School Board uh, was under a court federal court desegregation order, uh, and the way that the uh, school board uh decided to implement that order was by closing down uh the uh black high school williston high closing it down and uh, distributing the students who went there to the two previous uh all-white high schools uh which was uh an enormous shock and uh and very angering. uh the students who were at williston uh and who maybe hadn't gone there yet had dreamt of uh, graduating from uh, from Williston. They lost uh, an important community institution, and to uh, to meet the court order, they were the ones. You know, the students and the parents uh, were the ones who uh, paid the price of desegregation. The white the the white families and the white students uh, didn't have to do. Anything. and it seems it would have been in my mind much more equitable to take the three high schools and mix up the population uh, rather than uh, eliminate one high school and then also thereby eliminating uh, the traditions and eliminating uh, important jobs so yes the students were very were, were were extraordinarily angry about the closing of Williston and going from an environment that was uh, uh that they were used to and that they were accepted in to go into one that was extraordinarily hostile
0: so you said there there was the older generation of of african-american residents who'd made their way and found their way of being in wilmington then there were these black student activists what other black activist groups came to support these student activists
1: that's a that's a good question um there were three uh, major organizations that were involved in the at different stages in uh, in the Wilmington Ten. Uh, so the students began their boycott in the beginning of February. As I said, they their headquarters was at Gregory Congregational Church, which was a United Church of Christ uh, uh, church. Uh, the pastor there, uh, a white man named Eugene Templeton. Uh, uh, wanted to help the students, but felt that he didn't have, uh, all the, uh, uh, resources to help them. So he called his superiors and, uh, uh, the, the, the United Church of Christ commission for racial justice sent Ben Chavis. So the United Church of Christ, which, uh, their commission for racial justice was one of these organizations. They had a history and still have a history of, um, of uh, organizing Black folks um, uh, to achieve political ends, to to take their um, uh, to to help them take their grievances and turn them into demands. That's what we do. Uh, somewhat later, uh, and this would be after and the United Church of Christ was there really almost from the beginning of the boycott. That, that, you know uh, when the Uh, when the arrest came a year later in 1972, there were two other organizations that, uh, that, uh, became involved, uh, more heavily. One was the National Association for, uh, National Alliance against Racist and Political Repression. And that was affiliated with the Communist Party of the United States, um, and had a nationwide reach and ties to, uh, Ah, uh, the labor movement to politicians who were left of center around the country, uh, and to the Black Liberation Movement in other parts of the state, in other parts of the country, and then the third organization was the Youth Organization for Black Unity, which was founded in uh, Greensboro in uh, in uh, 1969 out of the uh, out of a high, another high school uh, uh, another uh, high school protest. And became nationwide. So these are, you know, three organizations. Oh, and then there was Golden Frinks. Uh, his Wilmington movement. Golden Frinks is probably more uh, uh, people probably know more about him uh, in in the listener, you know, in the in the the, the listenership uh, than the other two.
0: Did these black political movements groups have white allies at that point?
1: Yes. The uh, the uh, Commission for Racial Justice was an arm of uh, was like I guess you would say the social justice arm or a social justice arm you might call it today of the United Church of Christ was which, which was uh, an interracial um, uh, church. Uh, the um, National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, which grew out of uh, the campaign to free Angela Davis uh, from her uh, judicial frame-up in California—that was also multiracial. There was uh, uh, African Americans, whites, uh, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans—I uh, 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 suppose there were Asian Americans in there as well—and then the Youth Organization for Black Unity was um, uh, was uh, was black. But it, it it certainly Established a principled uh, working relations and alliances with um, with other radical uh, with other radical organizations and uh, Many of the members who were in that later on uh, Joined uh, the, the workers viewpoint organization, which was another organization uh, a multiracial. uh uh, organization uh devoted to radical change and uh so they all seem to work together and so yes it was a it was principally african-american but it was also uh multiracial and it was certainly multiracial in principle
0: newspapers of course i, I mean they've always impacted public opinion but you cite in your book the wilmington 10 some uh pretty egregiously slanted accounts of what happened during the four days of violence in February 1971? How did those newspapers and including and especially the Wilmington newspaper of record at the time, the white newspaper, what, what role did that play in the convictions of the Wilmington 10 and the way white people, the white majority generally thought about this at the time?
1: Well, I think, the uh the, the wilmington paper um led a drumbeat against uh against the school boycott and against uh the uh, 10 when they were uh against the 10 when they were arrested and then after they were uh, convicted i think it you know the press made it very difficult uh to um to get a fair trial and um I think that set the, uh, that set the foundation for the, uh, for the framing, you know, that, for the, for their, for their trial and their, their conviction and and being framed. So the papers were, uh, in my mind, were disgraceful.
0: Yeah. And you, so you mentioned the United Church of Christ as one of the, the activist groups that supported freeing the Wilmington 10, but that, even that wasn't a unified front can you kind of tell us about the just the division in the church over over that issue
1: sure you know i'm not a church historian uh but the you know i can say this the united church of christ was formed uh in uh, mid-century i believe as a merger of uh of uh a few uh christian protestant denominations uh one of which was uh Uh, overwhelmingly black and the other ones which were white and the ones that were uh, the the faction that was black that group that was black were largely based in uh, North Carolina and Virginia the the commission for racial justice and the church as a whole was committed to justice for all people and uh but not every because it was a merger not every uh not every local congregation uh, believed the same. And in the South, the Southern Conference of uh, of the United Church of Christ, there were many churches that were opposed uh, to the Wilmington, to, to supporting the Wilmington 10. Uh, many who were opposed to, the church was the one that raised the bail to get them out uh, before trial, and they were opposed uh, to that, and they engaged in uh, some of them not all of them, but some of them engaged in race baiting and red baiting uh so it was very difficult but to its credit the church leadership nationally stood behind the team and were uh you know i don't want to paint a picture that they were opposed they were they were they they were un un unwavering supporters
0: yeah And you you mentioned the National Church, the -hmm. Wilmington 10 did become this international cause celeb. And when we come back from this break, I'll just have you touch on briefly how that happened, how this grew beyond North Carolina. You're listening to Coastline UNC professor Kenneth Jenkin is my guest today. We're exploring the political implications of the Wilmington 10. He is the author of the book, The Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice, and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Line. i'm rachel lewis hilvern february 1971 wilmington north carolina was the seat of racial tension that led again to violence two deaths half a dozen injured hundreds of thousands of dollars in property damage ten people nine black men and one white woman were wrongly convicted of arson and conspiracy and didn't see their convictions overturned for another decade the fight to free the wilmington 10 gained international support and led to a new black political dynamic dr kenneth jenkin is a professor of african-american and diaspora studies at unc chapel hill he's also the author of the book the wilmington 10 violence injustice and the rise of new black politics in the 1970s he's with me now just before we went to break professor jenkin i asked you about how the 10 became this international cause why did the case stretch beyond not just Wilmington, but North Carolina.
1: Well, I think it was due to uh, a few reasons. the uh, The National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression that I mentioned earlier had a um, had a very strong international network. They uh, they had ties with uh, with the Eastern Bloc, uh, you know, especially with East Germany. Um, in fact, I have a, uh, a picture of, uh, that was sent to me, uh, bought of, uh, a free the Wilmington 10 display that was up in, uh, East Berlin. Uh, uh, and there were, and at that were American soldiers who, uh, who could go to East Berlin for the day. Anyway, the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Oppression had ties, uh, in, uh, in the socialist countries in Eastern Europe and in uh, communist parties and radical organizations throughout, uh, throughout West, Western Europe. And they were able to, um, uh, to bring this campaign to them, to the campaign to Freedom Wilmington 10 to them. And in those countries, separate organizations were formed uh, in the Freedom Wilmington 10 Solidarity Committee, uh, for example. So that's one that was one important way that it became international the amnesty the organization amnesty international got wind of this uh through a variety of uh, avenues including uh an organization called uh the the wilmington 10 defense committee i think it was called based in washington dc who had ties with congressional staffers and uh and other international organizations and they got amnesty international interested. And Amnesty International then began a campaign, uh, not in the United States, which they, you don't, they don't do campaigns in the countries where they're, uh, where the violations of human rights are. They do it around the world to put pressure on the United States. And Amnesty International uh, labeled the Wilmington 10 prisoners of conscience. And so there were, you know, there was work of that of Amnesty International in uh, England, in uh, West Germany, France in particular. Uh, and then uh, <clears throat> uh and then well I guess that's it. I mean, and then you know oh, and then uh the Soviet Union, uh, which was, you know, that was this was the Cold War, the Soviet Union picked up on uh on this case and you and broadcast it around the world to um uh to you know, to contest with the United States for, uh, uh, for influence around the world. And then it became an international, uh, an international, uh, uh, cause.
0: And you contend that, um, the, the movement of all of these different groups and, and, uh, political agendas kind of became a, focal point for new black politics around which you know this movement could coalesce what what is here today in in 2021 that you would consider having come from that 1970s free the wilmington 10 movement
1: okay i think there's a couple of things i think one uh, one uh descendant if you will of the wilmington 10 is uh, you you can see that in the uh, in the uh, the increasing number of African American uh, elected officials. That's not entirely due to the Wilmington Ten, of course, and maybe not even mainly. But the Wilmington Ten uh, uh, was uh, organized and became prominent at a time when African American were entering in ever larger numbers uh, the electoral field. African-Americans uh, secured the right to vote in the 65. Uh, uh, you see the the uh, election of black mayors and uh, black uh, representatives and black city council members, things like that. And so that's one thing that the Wilmington 10 drew into its orbit, the campaign to free the Wilmington 10 drew into its orbit all of these new, these new politicians, you know, political activists who wanted to become politicians, who wanted to become elected politicians. So people like uh, Mickey Mashaw, the uh, the former representative from Durham in the North Carolina state legislature, uh, he was one of those. Um, and there, there are others uh, as well. And so they uh, they become part of this and they become prominent in part because of this concentrated movement, uh, you know, of all these disparate organizations um, uh, focused around the Wilmington content. So that's one, that's one thing that I, I would say, uh, that there is this black uh, political class uh, that is, uh, is, uh, uh, that is uh, with us today. But I think the other uh, current that came out of this uh, movement which was a, 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 a radical movement to envision how society might be different, not just to free the Wilmington 10, which was important, but to think about how society might be organized differently, a society that eliminated racial hierarchy, a society that eliminated uh, exploitation uh, of uh, the majority uh, of workers by a few. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about that and i think that um you see uh kind of not coming to an end but certainly hit certainly was uh was damaged heavily uh by the early 1980s through uh uh uh, principally through government repression of those uh of uh, those advocates of of them and um and that's something that you know that needs to be in my my view, needs to be rebuilt. Uh, needs to be rebuilt today uh, to be able to take all these movements like Black Lives Matter, the fight for a, a fifteen dollar minimum wage, the fight for a living wage, the fight for uh, uh, healthcare as a human right as opposed to you know something that comes with your job, uh, the fight for decent housing, all of this, stuff, the fight for debt relief for students. Uh, the Wilmington 10 campaign successfully took all these different movements, criminal justice reform, uh, 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 free, South, free, uh, free South Africa, um, uh, fighting against apartheid, uh, 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 education reform, took all of these things where people had separate interests and were active and concentrated. and. Mm-hmm. and uh, allowed a some more or less united movement where all these different things came together and there was education and discussion about the causes um, and uh, points at, and, and discussions about solutions. That was cut off I think, in, in, by the early years.
0: You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with UNC professor Kenneth Jenkin about his book, The Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s. You know, it's interesting, um, people like Jimmy Carter in the 1970s, Governor, North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt would have said things and did say things like they were for equal rights. And yet when you actually peel back what they did and said in practice, some of their uh, it, it's problematic. (laughs) Governor Jim Hunt decided against pardoning the 10 in in 1978. And there was you, you document this trip that he took to New York City. In 1977, the North Carolina Symphony was performing for a sold out Carnegie Hall. And that was a big deal. He traveled to New York for the event. He got an earful while he was there about the 10. There was some pretty widespread public shaming of North Carolina about this case. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, yeah, Uh, you know, it seems as if wherever Hunt went um, uh, around the country, that uh, the different iterations of uh, Wilmington 10 defense committees or committed to freedom Wilmington 10 or whatever you would call it, uh, were there to uh, to greet him and I, I like that from shaming, uh, you know, the public shaming there was uh, uh, That happened all over the place people protested in North Carolina by taping over uh, By taping over the slogan on their um, On their license plates that said uh, first in freedom uh, and would take that over as a uh, means of protest uh, when uh, Jimmy Carter or uh, Hunt would, would uh, campaign in, uh, in different parts of the South, in different parts of North Carolina. Uh, they were met, uh, even in areas where you might think that, uh, uh, that there wouldn't be any opposition to them, and that there would be opposition to the women contend. Uh, there was some opposition to, uh, to what Hunt did. Um, but then also people traveled. You know, people got, I guess, caravan and went to meet him at outdoor rallies. So uh, it all, uh, uh, it all made for uh, a very uncomfortable time for the governor. Yeah.
0: Uh, So the, the convictions were overturned at the end of, of 1980. And you document the prosecutorial misconduct pretty thoroughly in your book, but it took another more than three decades to see a pardon. What, what did the pardon mean? How was that different from overturning the convictions and, and how did that come about?
1: Okay, well, the convictions were overturned by the uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, and that simply meant that their conviction was overturned. They could have been retried. The state chose not to retry it. Um, but, you know, they still live with those convictions on their record uh you know even though it's so overturned that doesn't get expunged uh and in the public in the public mind uh yeah in the public mind the main uh explanation for those convictions being overturned was it was on a technicality but if you consider you know uh putting witnesses on the stand that you know are going to lie a technicality and if you consider uh excluding blacks from the jury uh just a technicality and if you consider um the judges uh the trial judges uh awful treatment of the defense a technicality then i guess it was a technicality yeah. but most people i think would have said they got off on a technicality when in fact they were um uh, they were innocent of uh, what they had been accused of so the pardon uh it was a pardon of innocence and the pardon, you know, proclaimed their innocence, and then it also, because of the way North Carolina law works, it also made available to them a restitution uh, for the t- amount of time that they did in prison. So, uh...
0: but this is another element of this story that mm-hmm. that you talk about in your book. So many of us think, okay, so it's over then. So it took decades, but it's over. Right. Mm-hmm. But. It, it's not. The, the suffering and, and the lingering impacts on the victims continued and affected whole, entire lives, not just because of the time they spent in prison.
1: That's that's correct. You know, they found it the ones who remained in Wilmington found it extraordinarily difficult to find jobs uh, or to find a decent place to live. You know, landlords would uh, harass them. They might get a job and then an employer would say, Oh, you're Willie or Wolverine. Uh, you're that Willie or you know, out the door with you. Uh, they had hopes for going to college, many of them, and they were not able to realize that Connie Tyndall had hopes of playing, uh, in professional football. He didn't get that either. So yes, it ruined their lives. It made it hard on their family. Um, and, uh, you, you know, they should be compensated for that. And at minimum, people should recognize that these people fought for what they believed in and uh, uh, and paid a price. And that should be uh, recognized and honored.
0: So on the you sit on this University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Commission that has a grand title, History, Race, and a Way Forward, 50 years after the violence in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. What do you and the other members of the commission believe we still need to do what is the way forward
1: well i am not going to speak for the commission uh i'll speak for myself uh the commission is involved in uh in uh uh excavating the history of the university uh and its ties to uh slavery both in terms of uh, enslaved uh workers uh who uh Built and worked on the campus, uh, but also uh, understanding the university's ties to slavery in the financing of the university for the first, I don't know, uh, hundred years, probably less of the university. There was no budget from the general assembly, and the 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 uh, budget was largely funded by the sale of slaves, or if a slave owner died intestate that this the, that prop that human property went to uh the, the university which then sold sold those people and it was it was also funded by uh, uh uh stealing indian men so
0: and we are out of time that's this edition of coastline the book is the Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice, and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s. Professor Jenkin, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks also to Coastline producer Rachel Keith and technical director Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. If you missed part of this episode, look for it at WHQR.org or find it on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Oh, <laughs> oh,